0: Daniel chapter 8. Who's heard a sermon on Daniel chapter 8 before? (laughs) Not very many of us. His last line in verse 27, I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. I was like, all right. The angel Gabriel apparently interpreted this message for Daniel and he still doesn't get it. So we are going to do our best this morning. Um, our preaching philosophy around here, it's a, it's a style of preaching. It's called expository preaching. And expository preaching means to uh, pull the meaning, to expose the meaning up out of a text. We don't ever want to be uh, people who just rip scripture up out of its context and make a doctrine out of it and then live according to that doctrine but rather we want to know like what came before that passage of scripture what comes after it we want to always contextualize it so uh, we are um, first in expository preaching the first aim is to try to expose what the original author wanted the original audience to know And so we try to arrive at that understanding as we're looking at these ancient texts. This was written in about 550 BC, so 2600 years ago. We want to find that main idea and then we want to, we want to draw a line from their day to our day and then begin to apply it. There's a lot of different strengths to this style of expository preaching. One strength is that it stays really close to the scriptures. And it is constantly dealing with the context of the passages at hand. Another strength of expository preaching is that it teaches people, it teaches you and I, as we listen to messages like this, it teaches us how to read and study our, our own Bibles. Because you see right up out of the text how the preacher got the point. And so it, it gives this indirect um, uh, instruction on how to read and study the Scriptures Another thing that expository preaching does is it gives uh, the preacher confidence um, and gives authority to the sermon. So I'm not just coming to you week after week after week saying, hey, I just want to share something that God put on my heart this week because that's so subjective, right? It's so, so subjective, but rather where the preacher, whoever it is, is coming and saying, hey, this is what God's word means for the original audience and what God's word means for us today too. Another strength is that it forces us to deal with the harder stuff. It forces us to deal with harder passages. And as we deal with harder passages in Scripture, because as you just heard, there are parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand. And so what it does is it forms us into thoughtful hearers and and contemplators of God's Word. And it also just makes the preacher and the people work. It makes us work to understand. We can't just go for the easy stuff. Um, one, of the, one of the difficulties that comes with expository preaching is we, when we come to difficult texts, we have to do something with them. So we'll come into texts like Miracles... Especially in the Gospels and in certain passages in the Old Testament, we'll have to start dealing with, with miracles. There are things that natural law cannot explain, and, and we come, we're confronted with those things. Or we have to deal with situations of extreme violence in the Scriptures. Or we'll come into uncomfortable subjects, things like uh, talking about money and resources, talking about sexuality, talking about our allegiances. And it'll also bring us into the confusing stuff, like genealogies. Like, why are, is this list of names or, or these instructions on building a tabernacle that existed 3,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago? Why, why do I have to care about this stuff today? But it also brings us to apocalyptic prophecy which is where we are in Daniel chapter eight this morning. So I've had a number of friends who I've reached out to who have preached through Daniel. And these guys are, don't tell them, but they're such cowards. They just jump out at Daniel chapter seven and they're like, we're done, we preached the book. I'm like, no, you're not. Like, there's a bunch of weird stuff that comes after Daniel chapter seven. And I guess we're gonna do our best to try to understand it. And um, so I was really tempted last week. I tried actually to to. Um, to consolidate Daniel chapters 7 and 8 into one sermon last week. And I was just overwhelmed at it and realized that I didn't have the chops, I didn't have the skill, I didn't have the time needed to like distill that into one coherent message. Um, But I am convinced that all scripture is God-breathed. And all scripture is profitable for correction and for rebuking and for training in righteousness that the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I'm convinced that all of Scripture is profitable for us. So today we're digging into Daniel chapter 8. Um, we're going to hopefully arrive at some understanding. Maybe it's uh, a more full understanding or maybe it's just a, a, an introductory level understanding of why this chapter is in our Bibles. Why do we have it? The nations around us, including the one that we live within, are furious, and they're fragile. And within these nations that rage, according to the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2, within these nations that rage is where the people of God have to live. This is our address. We find ourselves living in furious and fragile nations, and kingdoms. And so last week's big idea for us was that Evil kings will ha- though evil kings will have their day, it is God who has the final say. And this week's big idea is, though evil kings will have their day, it is God who has the final say. It's the same big idea. Daniel chapter 8 actually drills a little bit deeper into part of what Daniel was talking about in verse, in verse 7. So here's just a catch up if you weren't with us last week. We explored this vision in Daniel chapter 7 that God gave him, Uh, God gave Daniel of these four beastly kingdoms, and these kingdoms were Babylon, which Daniel was living in. And at that time, when he was given the vision, uh, Medo-Persia, it was this combined kingdom. kingdom. Persia was the bigger of the two and would eventually take over um, the Medians, but Uh, After the Medo-Persian Empire, there was the Greek Empire that then rose up and controlled the face of the known world. And then after the Greeks, it was the Romans who would come and rule uh, the known world. And the way that these kingdoms would rule was through chaos and disorder in the eyes of God, through these systems of oppression and violence. They would crush all opposition their, uh, their, their, their systems of worship were degraded and corrupt in the eyes of God. They were godless. And so God would use these nations, actually, beginning with the Babylonians, to bring judgment on the Israelites for also rejecting them. But then he would, God would also use these nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greeks, and the Romans, to bring his Messiah's message, King Jesus' message, into the world. And so if we start at the end with the Romans, they created a system of roads that connected all of the major trade routes over land in the known world. And it fostered um, travel, unhampered travel, something like the world had never seen before. Their roads still exist to this day. Their road-making skill was incredible. And the missionaries of Jesus would spread out over these roads. But before the Romans came, the Greeks were there. And under the Greeks... Uh, The entire known world was again united in one unified trade language. It was the language of Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is what our New Testaments are predominantly written in. And so now there's a language that can then travel out among the roads where people can hear in a language they understand the message of King Jesus. But before the Greeks, God was using the Persians to bring about his purposes because Though Daniel and these exiles were captured by the Babylonians and their capital city, Jerusalem, and their temple, their place of worship was sacked and destroyed, and then they were carted off 500 miles into Babylon, the Persians would actually come after Babylon and give these Israelites permission to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the temple. And the king of Persia funded all of it out of his own pocketbooks and gave them protection. So the people of God go back to the capital city, then the Greeks come in, they have a language, then the Romans come in, there are roads, and then King Jesus comes and the gospel can just spread like wildfire over the known world and is largely responsible for the collapse of Rome under the the Christians there. That's a lot, I know. Uh, But... uh, But these beastly kingdoms, any of the four, they're given permission in Daniel chapter 7. They're given permission and they're given dominion from God, this ancient of days, uh, to rule over the known world for their appointed times and for their appointed purposes. But in Daniel chapter 7 verse 12, we learn that dominion was actually taken away from each of these kingdoms. So it was, we learn indirectly that it was God who gave them dominion for a season and a time. Tracy led us in our call to worship this morning out of Daniel chapter two, which has this line in it that God sets up kings and God tears down kings. The prophetic language in the last half of Daniel is mysterious. And in places, it's also really, really specific. And we'll get into some of the specifics, but uh, we will learn through Daniel chapter seven, that this Messiah will also be given a kingdom and he will be given a different kind of dominion. And this Messiah's kingdom is indestructible and his dominion will endure forever, which means that it's gonna be able to take whatever these beastly kingdoms throw at it. It will endure, it is resilient. So what Daniel is seeing is way out in the future for him. He's having this vision in about 550 BC in Daniel chapter eight. But what he's seeing is like 400 years into the future. And ultimately, like the big idea is that the kingdom of God has no end. These kingdoms will crash and other kingdoms will come and swallow them up and rule after them. But the kingdom of God has no end. The kingdom of God is infinite. Daniel had his prophetic dreams in chapter 7 in the year 552 B.C., like I said, they 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 were about events way out in the future. But what we read in Daniel chapter seven is that these these this vision was so wild to him that it drained the, the color from his face because of the way it troubled his soul. What troubled his soul that he would see the people of God suffer tremendously. And he was kind of seeing it all in this vision in real time before his eyes. And now in chapter eight, he makes another, he has another vision another dream, and this overcomes him and makes him sick for days. Verse 27 says that he's appalled, the very last verse in chapter eight, he's appalled and he didn't understand it. And the, Greek, the Hebrew, rather, word for appalled here means that he was ruined or he was made desolate on his insides. He was physically made ill through this vision that he saw. And what he sees in Daniel chapter eight will come true in real world history in about 168 BC. We'll talk about that in a little while. But the thought of what he saw, the vision of what he saw, it was too much for his heart, it was too much for his head, it was too much for his body, it was too much for his soul to take. It made him, no, it made him absolutely nauseous. Um, I have legitimately felt some rage uh, within me, over what is happening, even just in our local community college right now. What it's doing to the people that I love, some of whom are in this room, the way that it is troubling you, the way that it is potentially costing you work and your place of employment, and even where you live. Uh, I, I've, as I've seen, like our own way of life threatened from the outside, I've felt this like bubbling up within my soul of rage. I've felt disturbed absolutely um, by the political idolatry all around us that has duped followers of Jesus and made us, made them sort of believe that like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the United States are one and the same. It's from the pit of hell. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the United States are not the same. They are not equitable. I know that raises like points of protest maybe for some of you in the room. But we have got to be very, very, very careful about baptizing our politics with King Jesus. He is of first allegiance no matter what. And the reality of the United States history, I've been a resident here for 44 years, I love my country, but we have had our hands in good and in evil. We have operated as a beastly kingdom at various times in our history, and arguably there's been a threat of it throughout our entire history. And so we need to be careful about where our allegiance lies. I've felt rage at what's going on at the community college. I've felt like disturbed in my soul at what's happening in our country. I've I've felt sick inside when I've heard people use Jesus' name as the choice words of their cuss words. You know what I'm talking about, when people utter Jesus Christ as a curse word. Daniel's, uh, so when you and I love someone, it sickens us inside when we lose them, whether dead or alive. When friendships are broken off, it sickens us. When we lose someone to death, it sickens us when they die. When we, when, when we love our country, it, it, it overcomes us to see it weakened and to see it destroyed. When we love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind and our strength, it appalls us to see God mocked and openly despised. Daniel's nightmare, this vision that he has in chapter 3, contains all three. His people are killed. His nation is savagely destroyed. And his God, the one whom he loves with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, is boldly despised and mocked. And yet Daniel, there he is in Babylon as a servant of Babylon, yet he is a Hebrew. We learn exactly what the vision of chapter 8 is about in verses 20 and 21. Um, This angel Gabriel explains some of the vision to Daniel and he says it's about the king of Media and Persia and Greece And there's a theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. He is so concise here that I want to quote him at length to get us to clarity about the dreams and about the real future events that Daniel chapter 8 depict. Daniel's vision was amazingly fulfilled in real history. Like the stuff that Daniel is seeing came true in world history. So this is what Ferguson writes. He says and just like pay, i know we're not like an audible oral culture anymore we're much more of a visual culture but i decided not to put it on the screen i just want you to like tune in and just try to try to track with me here i think it's relatively easy to understand sinclair ferguson he writes daniel saw this ram in his vision budding its way westward and northward and southward and no animal could withstand this ram he did according to his own will in verse 4, and he became great. And this conquest was all embracing in the known world and irresistible. And it was the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire would spread into Babylonia and Syria and Asia Minor in the west, to Armenia and the area of the Caspian Sea in the north, and into Africa in the south. In all likelihood, it is the authoritative interpretation of this vision that helps to explain the boldness of Daniel's words to Belshazzar on the last day of his reign in Daniel chapter 5. If you remember Daniel chapter 5, he he just like has, he he like confronts this king and he says, you're wicked and you're going to be destroyed on this very day. So for some time before that day, when he confronted the king, Daniel had already known, at least in general terms, that the Babylonian empire would collapse. The writing on the wall was simply an indication to him of the divine timing. And so he was not taken by surprise. He spoke boldly because he knew that his God was ruling over the affairs of all the world. So think about our big idea. While evil kings will have their day, it is God who has the final say. Ferguson keeps going. He says, As Daniel observed the ram, another animal comes into view, and it's a goat. Your footnote says it's a shaggy goat. I kind of like that. Shaggy goat comes into view. It came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, in verse 5. The second beast obviously represented an empire achieving tremendous expansion quickly, or swiftly. It is, Gabriel reveals, the kingdom of Greece. He says that in verse 21. That's who this shaggy goat is. It's the kingdom of Greece. The notable horn is a clear reference to Alexander the Great. The vision describes the totality and the speed of his conquest of the nations prior to his early and debauched death at the age of 33. Alexander the Great, a general of the Greek army at 21 years old, had virtually conquered the known world by the age of 26. In this vision, Daniel witnessed the confrontation between the ram and the goat. The goat runs at the ram with furious power. There was no power in the ram to withstand the goat, verses 6 and 7. Nothing could more eloquently eloquently summarize the overwhelming defeat that Alexander visited upon the Persian forces in a battle at the Granicus River in 334 BC. With only 35,000 men, Alexander's forces plunged through the river attacking the Persian king Darius' 100,000 footmen. So 35,000 to 1,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen. Alexander the Great reportedly killed at least 20,000 of the Persian army at a loss of only 100 of his own Greek troops. Complete victory was assured at the battles of Issus the following year and at Gagamela in 331 B.C., the large horn spoken of in verse 8 is broken however suddenly and unexpectedly that large horn is alexander the great alexander after his death was his, his region was divided into four his kingdom was divided into four regions which verse 22 talks about these four kingdoms will arise out of that nation but none of them will have its power so it'll be divided by four of these four kingdoms one of the kingdoms takes center stage in daniel's vision it's the little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That word, glorious land, there is the land of Israel. The little horn not only takes a position of prominence, but it becomes the centerpiece of the vision, and its activity is described in great detail. Clearly, this little horn represents the climax of Daniel's revelation in chapter 8, end quote. Are you still with me? Kind of, sort of talking about this little horn, scholars are surprisingly united about the identity of this little horn that comes up out of the big one that does so much damage to uh, the Jews. It is a historical king named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes Epiphanes was a name that he gave to himself, and it means God in the flesh. This is a Greek king of the Seleucid Empire in the 160s BC. These are two versions of coins that he had minted with his likeness on them. And on the back side of that coin, it says, Antiochus Epiphanes, God in the Flesh. I first learned about this guy uh, when I read a, a, a historical fiction novel uh, for a seminary class that I had in 2021. And What I learned was that Antiochus is a kind of antichrist. Antiochus, in the scripture, Antiochus represents a kind of antichrist. So Antiochus is this historical figure, but he's also a type of an antichrist who God will use to forewarn his people of what is to come. To be forewarned about the future is to be forearmed for the future. You're tracking when we have an idea of, of what is coming, it protects us with what, it, what what actually does come. We can stand a little bit more steady. One of the things that my kids and I like to do is we like to scare each other around the house. So I don't know if I've told this recently, but, but uh, like I'll be sitting in the office and it has a view into our driveway and I'll watch Meredith come home with the kids. And as soon as I see them like turn around the corner into the neighborhood, I'll ditch like if it's dark, even better, I'll turn off all the lights in the house and then I will disappear and my kids will come into the house dad 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 and they'll realize they'll see my truck in the driveway i'm home but i'm not home and then they'll just tear the house apart looking for me and if it all goes well i'll get an opportunity to make them scream like the little babies that they are <laughs> i do this actually to trevor sometimes around here and you you should i've i've actually backed way off of it because like it's creepy in the hallways back here and I can just feel the dude. He's got a bit of a twitch when he enters a, a dark hallway. But like, and so they, they like to do this stuff. They like to do this stuff uh, to me too. My kids like to do this stuff to me and Trevor's not nearly as sneaky as I am, but he'll get there. And so, uh, but, but sometimes like, I'll see them get into their hiding place. Like I'll see the setup. So I actually wrote this into my notes this last week on Thursday. I wrote it into my notes about 10 minutes later. I'm I'm in my office, and I see Meredith's car pull in, and I knew she had two little, two of our kids were sick home with her. And so I saw her pull into the driveway here at the building. And then I hear the front door open, and then I hear these little pitter-patter steps come up the hallway right next to my office. And, like, I had just said, I'm going to use this as an illustration, and then I'm kind of turned, so my, my eye is at the door a little bit, and I see these dark figures come, you know, behind the door, and then they burst through the door, ah, well, I wasn't scared, I didn't flinch, why? To be forewarned is to be forearmed, when we have an idea of what is coming, we can just, like, keep it steady, Right? This is one of the reasons I think that biblical prophecy is in our Bibles. It's to forewarn us about the future and therefore forearm us about the future. And so it helps us to stand firm and to continue just going about the king's business. We know these things are coming. When everybody else is in a panic, when everybody else is losing their minds, when everybody else is trying to like get you into their fray and into their panic, The people of God actually have a shot at staying calm. Cool heads can prevail. We keep our eyes on the king, and we're about the king's business. There's this little line in verse 27 about Daniel. He's sick, he's appalled, and he goes on about the king's business. I think it's a powerful line. Now, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, I want to tell you a little bit about him. I'm going to read another quote at length here. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, this type of Antichrist who really lived, he emerged within his dynasty bearing all of the demonic characteristics of this little horn in Daniel's vision. And it may well be, Ferguson writes, that there is some significance in the common designation of the little horn for Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. So the final Antichrist will not appear on the scene of world history without predecessors. Its personal characteristics have long been shared by others who may be seen as these many antichrists who have already appeared. One of our New Testament writers, the Apostle John, he talked about this in 1 John 2.18, that many antichrists have already come And so later in Daniel, we'll get to this next week and the week after, references made to this abomination of desolation. It's this apocalyptic language that has to do with what happens in the temple of God. And so this refers in the first instance to an activity of this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. But his activity is actually the embryonic form of of an evil that all antichrists perpetrate in one form or another. Hence, Jesus uses this expression in Mark 13, 14 of this abomination that causes desolation and, f- and future al- further allusions to it appear in the New Testament's teaching on the last thing. So what are we to make of Antiochus? Antiochus came to power in 175 BC and he succeeded his brother, a guy named Seleucus Philopater. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it exactly. Epiphanes was this blasphemous title That he gave to himself later in his reign. It means God in the flesh or the illustrious God. And others called him, they made up this like play on words for uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And they actually called him Epimenes, meaning the madman. Antiochus the madman he's power hungry he seeks to expand his dominion to include Palestine which is the place of the temple and Jerusalem which would bring him into conflict with the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt remember this is real history in Jerusalem he replaces the high priest of the temple with a man of his own choosing this outrages the Hebrews Then Antiochus leaves there and he invades Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, a rumor of his death starts to circulate back in Jerusalem among the Jews and they're joyful about it. And so they make effort to reinstall the high priest into the temple, the the genuine Hebrew high priest. Antiochus gets word of it. He accuses the Jews of rebellion. He savagely attacks and sacks their city in Jerusalem. He executes tens of thousands of their inhabitants, forty thousand of them apparently dying within the space of three days. Records tell us that another forty thousand Jews were taken captive and sold off into slavery. Antiochus and his army they enter the temple, they enter the holy of holies, they sacrifice a pig on the burnt on the altar of burnt offering. They defile the temple, they take the sacred furniture out of it, and they establish a traitor, someone named Menelaus, as the high priest. Now, in 168 BC, when Antiochus' efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vents his frustrations and his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of Antiochus' soldiers... On Sabbath day, they're assembled in the temple courts for worship. Twenty thousand of his Greek soldiers come in, and they 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 slaughter thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these Jews in the temple courts. They uh, they 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 end up sacrificing humans on Jews on the altar in the temple courts. They forbade circumcision, which is a mark of the covenant of the Hebrew people. They made them eat unclean meat. Some of the people who they sacrificed in the temple courts, they would stuff pig's flesh into their mouths. They uh, outlawed the Sabbath. They confiscated the, the scrolls of the law from any of the homes of the Israelites in Jerusalem. Anyone who was found with the scrolls would immediately be put to death. It was in this context that someone named Judas uh, Maccabeus and his followers began their nationalistic exploits. So there's this period in between, this period of silence in between the Old Testament and the New Testament of about 400 years, and all of what I just read to you and talked about is happening in that 400-year reign. And in, uh, if you grew up Catholic, if you're familiar with the the Catholic Bible, there are these these the books of Maccabees. There's, um, I think they go all the way through Book Seven, maybe. Maybe, maybe more, but they tell of this intertestamental period, this guy named Antiochus, Judas um, Maccabeus and his followers. One thing that they tell the history of is how uh, Antiochus' uh, Epiphanes died under mysterious circumstances while he was returning from Persia. He contracted this exceedingly painful disease, which according to this account in 1 Maccabees, was accompanied by deep and unmitigated psychological anguish end quote. Read the Maccabees for history. They didn't make it into the Canon for good reason, but these are like these are verifiable historical accounts of what is going on. Between the days of Jesus' birth and when the prophets went silent, which you can read about at the end of Malachi. Okay, so I know that's a lot of history. Like, we're in the deep waters. I've never preached a sermon on apocalyptic prophecy before last week. I'm out of my depth, too. I hope you're hanging with me. I've got two points, and then we're going to land this plane. Um, Point number one is this, as you read the prophetic literature in Daniel chapter 7 through 12, I want you to understand that this, this literature, this prophecy is fulfilled already, but not yet. Fulfilled already, but not yet. You don't really have to wonder anymore. There are specific prophecies in Daniel chapter 7 and 8 that have been fulfilled, but they're also pointing us to an Antichrist like figure and a series of Antichrists people who oppose Jesus in the future as other beastly kingdoms will inevitably come up and rule. And yet the outcome is the same. Evil rulers will have their day, but it is God who has the final say. That is what Daniel 7 and 8 and some of this stuff is in our Bibles for. Jesus talks, he actually reaches back to Daniel chapter 7 and 8. Um, The apostle John reaches back into Daniel chapter 7 and 8. Paul reaches back, and they they acknowledge that, that some of these events have already been fulfilled in real history, but they're still using this prophetic literature to point to a future time in, um, to, to, a, to a time in the future. So um, the apocalyptic prophecy in Daniel functions in both near ways and in far ways, specifically around this kind of like mega-beastly Antichrist figure who will speak arrogantly and come against God, the big capital A Antichrist, who will wear out God's people through persecution. My wife and I were in Colorado uh, last week, and it, um, one thing about Colorado is it's got these mega mountains. You've probably heard of them, the Rockies. You see these like glorious, like majestic peaks. But one thing, one reality about mountains, when you're looking at mountains, especially big ones, is that you'll see the foothills of these mountains, you'll see the bases of these mountains, you'll see ridgelines, and then you'll see summits. And what we often think is that we see these ridgelines that lead right up to these summits, but what happens is our eyes deceive us. But because when we get closer to these mountains, we realize that what we thought was the summit may actually be a false summit, or what we thought was the ridgeline that leads to the mountain actually isn't the, the, or to the summit isn't actually the ridgeline that leads to the summit. We get up to that and there's a vast a decline and then a valley, and then a space of miles in between the, the, the low ridge line and the peak that we saw. And biblical prophecy, in some ways, is like that. It's pointing us to something near in our present or in the very near future, but also biblical prophecy is also looking out into the future. And so, um, they are, biblical prophecy like this is pointing to the antichrists, both of their day. And also forewarning people that there is going to be a recurring historical phenomenon. Until the return of Jesus Christ, ruthless dictators will continue to emerge, wearing out the saints and stopping at nothing to achieve their ends. And at the true last hour, like the Bible talks about this mega beast who will arrive and continue in this satanic pattern only to be the last one in line. Though the Antichrist... The capital A Antichrist will have his day. The Ancient of Days will put him in his place. Daniel chapter 8 wants us to know this. So if you're prone to getting all freaked out about the future, Daniel chapter 8 wants to secure us and forewarn us and therefore forearm us. Here's my last point. In every age, the spirit of an Antichrist figure, figure that is opposing Jesus Christ, is at work. There's a lot of talk in our day. We saw this really ramp up with COVID uh, in our day of being, it being the end times. You've probably asked those questions. You've had conversations like, do you think like this is it, that we're in the end times? And I want to, I want to humbly recalibrate part of this understanding. Did you know that the last days began with the resurrection of Jesus? The end times began with the resurrection of Jesus. We have been in the end times, according to the Bible, for 2,020 years, 23 years, or whatever the math is. We have been in the end times this entire time. John the Apostle, Jesus' Apostle, he said about his own day, He said he's writing to the church, he said, Beloved, we're in the last hour. Not just the last day. He's going, we're in the very last hour. 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, he's writing to them. So future Antichrist. So now, John says, many Antichrists have come. Past tense. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour and then he would write another letter in 2 John 1.7, and he'd say this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, and such a one like that is the deceiver and the antichrist. So he's talking about a plethora of people who are opposing God. The very first Christian sermon was preached by one of Jesus' apostles, a guy named Peter and he quoted the the prophet Joel, so he reaches back. Peter does into four hundred, the year four hundred BC, and he appropriates Joel's prophecy about the last days to his own time. And Peter says this, and he quotes this in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. And in the last days, this is what shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is what has been happening for the last 2,000 years. Praise be to God. We have been in the last days. We are in the last days. Today, are we closer to the coming of Jesus Christ and his return? 100% chronologically, but we don't actually know if today is that much more significant than years that have gone by. So here's my conclusion. No matter what is going on in culture around us, please choose to go about the king's business and do not, notice my language here, over-concern yourself with the end times. Please do not over-concern yourself with the end times. Nerd out on it, get into it, Get some commentators, get your Bible open, love it, debate about it, but please, please, please do not obsess over it because though evil kings will have their day, it is God who has the final say. There are a lot of people who want to whip you up into a frenzy about all of the ways that our world is ending, and that may be. We don't know the hour. Jesus himself said, I don't even know the hour. But there is just as much evidence that King Jesus has business for you and I to be about today. There's just as much evidence that he's at work in our day among us. Ungodly kingdoms will always be furious, will always be fragile. And this is where God has his people. This is our address. And so Daniel's attitude illustrates an important Biblical principle and view of whatever the future holds, we must live as faithful exiles wherever we are now. And so we do the king's business. What is the king's business? We're a people of prayer. We're a people who are humbly dependent. We're a people who are eager to get low before our king. We're people who love and who learn, who love to hear the king's word his Bible. We want to know the truth of the scriptures. We're people who love to sacrifice for the king's church, who he's given his own body and blood for to redeem to himself. We want to strengthen his church. We want to give generously to his church. We want to teach. We want to talk openly about how the king has changed our lives. This is the king's business, We want to open our own lives so that others can see this king's goodness and we want to keep our eyes on the only king who is the Christ and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. While writing to a preaching engagement, a famous theologian and preacher named John Wesley, he was asked by somebody what he would do if he knew that Jesus was returning at noon the next day. And John Wesley's response was to reach into the saddlebag on his horse, to pull out his diary, to look at his engagements for the remainder of his day today and uh, the morning of his day tomorrow, and he held it before the guy and he said, this is what I'm going to be about, the very same thing that I am already about the king's business. I want to live faithfully today because as we live faithfully today, we don't have to worry about our tomorrows. The Lord Jesus Christ holds all of them. Those days have enough trouble of their own, he famously said in Matthew chapter six. So may we be about the king's business. Amen. Father, we love you. We. We want to know your word, it perplexes us, it's hard. I just, I can feel that in, in this moment, the difficulty of explaining some of this stuff. It's, it's not my zone. And yet I trust that, Lord, you, you know your people, you're instructing us, you're helping us. So please continue to help us love your word and not just skip the hard stuff, but let's help us to be, you know, Father, would you help us to be honest about it? where it perplexes us, we have the freedom to put it down and to come back to it again at a later time. But keep us feasting on your word. Grow us in our understanding of your word. Grow us in our understanding of your son, Jesus Christ, who is the king whose kingdom will never have an end, whose dominion endures forever. Jesus, we, we give you thanks for giving this word to Daniel so that we could look back and in, back into the past, to see what you had been doing then and to be forewarned and forearmed for a future should we experience it. In Jesus' name, keep us faithful. Amen.